Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Love is Alive, a hit radio single in 1976 that was written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Gary Wright. Launching his professional career as a child actor on Broadway, Wright eventually moved to Europe to pursue postgraduate studies in psychology. While there, he co-founded the group Spooky Tooth as keyboardist and primary songwriter. He departed in 1970 to launch a solo career and, during this era, also began working as a studio musician, playing on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass album, Ringo Starr's It Don't Come Easy, Harry Nilsson's Without You, and other notable recordings by legends such as B.B. King and Jerry Lee Lewis. His work with George Harrison led to a lifelong friendship, resulting in Wright appearing on every Harrison solo album in the 1970s. George recorded several of their co-written compositions, including If You Believe from his 1979 self-titled album, and That's What It Takes, which the two composed with Jeff Lynn for the acclaimed Cloud Nine album. After a second stint with Spooky Tooth from 1972 to 1974, Gary's commercial breakthrough as a solo artist came when he signed with Warner Brothers Records. The Dreamweaver LP from 1975 spawned two massive hits, the title track, which became a number one single, and the aforementioned Love is Alive, which climbed to number two on the Billboard pop chart. He continued to record for Warner Brothers into the 1980s, with highlights including the critically acclaimed Head and Home album in 1979 and the top 20 single Really Want to Know You from 1981. After spending several years exploring world music, Gary returned to his rock and pop roots with a Spooky Tooth reunion in 2004, followed by a multi-year stint in Ringo Starr's All-Star Band beginning in 2008. His most recent release is the previously unheard album Ring of Changes, which he recorded in 1972 with his band Wonder Wheel, featuring a pre-foreigner Mick Jones. In 2014, Gary released his autobiography Dreamweaver, Music, Meditation, and My Friendship with George Harrison. Well, Gary Wright holds a distinction of having worked really extensively with two Beatles. I mean, aside from his own illustrious solo career, the yeah. fact that he's worked you know, so closely with George Harrison and with Ringo. Not yeah. too many people you can say that about. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Actually, I, was, I meant to ask you, because last weekend, I think it was last week, was it last, mm. last weekend you went to the uh, desert trip? Oh, the desert uh, trip thing, yep. Yeah, out in, Old uh, cella. <laughs> right, out in the desert with, uh, what was it, the Stones, Neil, Neil Young? Young, yeah. Who else was there? Um, Bob Dylan right. and Paul McCartney. And I, I have to confess that I missed the last day with Roger Waters because I had to get back. Mm. Um, but I did get to see Dylan, Stones, Neil Young, McCartney. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Super fun. I know you're a huge McCartney fan. so I am. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got to confess, we, <laughs> our tickets were kind of in the far back section. Right. Um, right. And there were a lot of people there. I've seen estimates. <laughs> it, it looked like there were... 500,000 people there, <laughs> right. probably closer to 80, but right. it's just a ton of people. And, uh, and I wasn't content with being as far back as I was. Right. Um, <laughs> and ended up seeing a couple guys walk by, you know, just carrying beers to and fro. And, uh, my buddy pointed like out, he said, concert goers or no, no, no. These are guys that, that, that were working there. Yeah. Oh, guys like that carting. Were, yeah. Carting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I think there's beer at concerts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, they were like, you know, <laughs> uh, on the job. Right. And just kind of like making their way through security, kind of going where they wanted. Right. And uh, my friend pointed out, he said, you know, you're... <laughs> I see where this yeah. is going. <laughs> he said, you know, you're dressed exactly 
like those guys. <laughs> and I looked down and I was. I had black shorts, a black t-shirt. I had this black hat on. And <laughs> so I said, all right, hold my sunglasses. <laughs> and uh, turned my hat on backwards and uh, found a pallet of beers with a guy kind of watching them. And I said, uh, I said, hey, are these the beers that are going to the other side? And he's like, yeah. I was like, all right, yeah, load me up. Like a security guy? Yeah, just... just <laughs> A guy employed by the facility, and uh, so I, I, he handed me three cases of beer, which were heavy, and I, uh, I just started walking, man. I just, right. just made a beeline, and I just sort of acted kind of gruff, and uh, and in a in a rush, and just forced right. my way past a couple security checkpoints. And next thing I knew, I was side stage watching the rest of the Neil Young set, and uh, no one asked you. You didn't have to show any kind of badge or anything? Um, I had a couple of people said, do you work here? <laughs> and I, I was just kind of like, no time to talk. <laughs> and uh, Got to deliver this beer. Yeah, totally. So I, I watched uh, the second half of Neil Young from the side of the stage and got to see McCartney there. And I <laughs> I just kind of hid the beers uh, somewhere. <laughs> I, I didn't want to be in trouble for... Right. for yeah, I, I kind of got in a little deeper than I thought I would. Um but got to watch the rest of the show and got to sort of to, to play the role of a working man. Right. Nice. Uh, for nice. a few hours. And, uh, well, uh, I think that Gary Wright probably got close to, uh, some former Beatles much more legitimately than you did. Yeah, well, so, absolutely. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's, let's jump into his story and, uh, and hear from the, the dream weaver himself. Let's do it. Gary, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So we are sitting here in your studio on a very warm Southern California day, um, but you grew up in New Jersey yes, and have your roots as an entertainer and singer that go all the way back to 1954 when you joined the cast of the Broadway show Fanny as a kid. So tell us how that came about and what you gained through that experience that you've kind of carried even to your life and career now. Well, I think it all, it all started. My mother was kind of a frustrated actor actress or a singer she actually used to sing uh she had her own radio program with her sister that they had coming out of new jersey oh. and she even sang with frank sinatra one once or twice mm. wow so she uh she wanted uh you know us as children you know to get involved in in show business so right. to speak you know yeah. and one day we got a call that that there was an open from the agent saying that there's a open audition for the broadway show fanny which mm. is being directed by joshua logan and produced by David Merrick. So uh, she took me in, and after coming back uh, twice, I was chosen uh, not as not as the lead part, but as the understudy, huh. which I thought, well, you know, I'd never been in a Broadway show. I thought that would be a cool thing. Right. And it wasn't until two years after the play had been running on Broadway, and it, and it was a big hit. It was like South Pacific. Hmm. Um, the lead... Part of the lead, the lead uh, male part of which what I was going to be, un, uh, which I was going to be playing, was called Cesario, the son of Fanny, and mm. actually they said, okay, now it's time for you to take over the role, mm. and so I got into into playing Cesario, and Florence Henderson was my mother. In oh, the show. nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> and Ezio Pinza was my my grandfather. Wow, wow, and. Uh, it was it was an amazing experience, but you know me being a kid of like eleven and twelve, going into New York City from New Jersey uh, six nights a week, was kind of a strain. After a while, yeah. I wanted to be playing baseball with my friends, <laughs> right? And, you know, right. So finally, after like two years, I left. 
But what I learned from that whole experience was playing, you know, before an audience. I got mm. to sing live before a, you know, a full orchestra with strings and violins and cellos and woodwinds and all that. Yeah. And I got to sing a song called Be Kind to Your Parents with Florence Henderson. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and she was your mom before she became America's mom. Yeah, on the Brady, Brady Bunch, Bunch about that's right. Later. But anyway, so it gave me a sense of of performing, being yeah. in that, you know, and, and remembering lines and stuff. That was the biggest fear I had, though, was if I forgot my lines. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, you, you continued on with, with that performing, and in 1960, you and Bill Markle released a couple of songs as Gary and Billy on the 20th Century oh, Fox yeah. label. Uh, the songs were Lisa and Working After School. After school, I run on home, drop my books, telephone, tell her that I love her too, nothing else for me to do, working after school. were still teenagers at the time so how did that opportunity come about we were in high school together and and uh we loved music and uh i think his father was his father was a an engineer for um nbc radio Mm. and i I know he worked out of one of the the big towers in uh rockefeller plaza i think it was nbc but anyway, uh, he's the one who made the connection with 20th, what was the name of the label? Uh, 20th Century Fox. 20th Century Fox, yeah. yeah. So he, we arranged, we met with the A&R people and they, they said, okay, let's let's do this. And the record, I think, got to like top 40. Right. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. For a high school kid, that must have been mind-blowing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. It was. Man. Well, I mean, even though you were making these records as a teenager or you made that record you were playing in bands obviously music as a teen was very much uh, a part of your life but you didn't actually get into writing your own material as i understand it until after you had had moved to europe to pursue your studies and maybe even mentally had kind of put music on the on the back burner so i'd love to hear how you kind of kept music in your life even while pursuing studies and then eventually got around to writing songs of your own Well, before I actually went to Europe, I was in med school over here. I was going to a a medical school in uh, Brooklyn called Downstate Medical College. But I was so frustrated because that was such a grind and it was like incredible amount of work that the only relief I had was to listen to music. And a friend of mine, Jimmy Miller, who uh, went on to become a producer, uh, had a production company and he worked with this guy named Larry Fallon. And I would go at every time at, at like three in the afternoon or whenever it was on Friday, I would go to their studio where they're recording and listen to their great stuff. It was more R&B kind of focused, but it was really good. Yeah. So I, that's, that was my only connection with music at the time. Then when I went to Europe, I, was, I did the postgraduate work in psychology, and, but there was no music. I took flamenco guitar lessons. Mm. That was the closest thing I, <laughs> yeah. I did. And then, and then I learned how to play. You know, I actually wrote Dreamweaver on an acoustic guitar. Oh, interesting. Instrument. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, not a, not as a great guitar player, but I could play the chords and then yeah. sing the melodies. Yeah. Um, so, finally, I put this band together. We went back to tour Europe as an R&B band uh, with, with all Americans, with the exception of the bass player. And that we went uh, then to Oslo, Norway, to uh, do a, a, a small tour uh, throughout Nor- Norway, and uh, we heard that traffic were coming to play in Oslo and, and the promoter asked if we wanted to open for them and we said sure. Yeah. And at the at the uh at the time Chris Blackwell who started Island Records 
was a traffic's manager. Mm. And so, and he had, he had known, uh, he was working with Jimmy Miller because Jimmy produced, not only did he produce traffic, but he also produced Spencer Davis, Give Me Some Love and I'm yeah. a Man. Wow. Yeah. So I, there was that connection, my having known Jimmy from New Jersey. Yeah. And Chris, you know, having hired Jimmy to work with his label, right? So we, uh, so we went back anyway. I went back to uh, with the band to London, and we did some recording, and it didn't work out. They weren't really good enough musicians to cut it in the studio. Yeah. So, but Chris said, "Well, I have, uh, I have got this band. There's four guys, and you might might want to consider like working with them, and and mm. you'd be the fifth member since you, you write songs. Yeah. And you know, you can sing and." So we agreed, and we went into the studio, and sure enough, the, the, the it was a success. Yeah. And the song, ironically, that that was we recorded was called "Sunshine Help Me," hmm. which I had written while I was still touring in in uh, Europe. Yeah. And that was the first song I ever wrote, really. Wow. So Years, years later, I think it was like two or three years ago, Jay-Z and uh, Kanye mm -hmm. uh, recorded an album called Watch the Throne. Yeah. And they sampled a part of this song, Sunshine Help Me. Wow. Right. And wound up selling millions of copies. <laughs> and, Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> and, and it did really, really well and was in a big commercial in Europe. And yeah. I couldn't believe it. I thought... The song that never earned anything for me while I was in Spirit <laughs> right, Tooth. Right. This is the payday, you know. Right. So That's let that be cool. a lesson. Patience. Yeah, Patience. you never know. Yeah. You that never was know, uh, right. No Church in the Wild, I think, was the yeah, name that of was that. Right. Which exactly. they won a Grammy uh, for like best rap collaboration yeah. or something like that. So that was actually the first song <laughs> the first song you wrote, and then thanks to that first song you ever wrote, decades later it wins wins a Grammy and yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> But wow. that's a lot. life is like that. You're going down these circuitous paths, and you never know which right, one right. you know you're going to be taking. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting how you know that song that you had recorded with Spooky Tooth, and comes back all those years later. And there's been songs in your career that have that have kind of done that. That you know, once the song is written, you never know where it might crop up at some point in the future and I, I think about the song uh, coming apart which he wrote with the legendary Barry, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil and that was in the in the early 80s which was later incorporated into a huge dance single called right. my 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 right. which was like a huge international dance hit so another kind of pleasant surprise there of an older song yep. rearing its head um, but I actually wanted to ask you about a one of the more bizarre i guess episodes uh, involving one of your songs which is uh better by you better than me which was of course another spooky tooth song on you guys's second album that judas priest recorded better by you wound up being this trial that Judas Priest was accused of subliminal messages in their songs that caused these teenagers to take their own lives. And I remember when this was 
in the news years yeah. ago. It was a big, I mean, it was a big deal. Um, but I didn't realize that it was one of, you know, it was a song that you had written. And I know that the, the question at hand was their recording and supposed subliminal messages in the song. So I know it wasn't the song itself as much as it was the record, but what was that like to have been the writer of this song that suddenly is now at the center of this controversy that has nothing to do with you? <laughs> it was, it was annoying. I was really, up, I, mean, I was kind of really annoyed that somebody would actually think that I had written that yeah. In, yeah. The, in the context of, of that. That was just, you know, just because the guys, the lead singer said, do it, do it. Right. And they thought that was a message saying, kill yourself, you know, yeah, it's right. quite a reach. Yeah, it really is. But it was like, you know, probably the parents were like, you know, had at their wits end and just try to get some of the money back or something that he hadn't, yeah. you know, made. So, yeah, it's kind of amazing that even made it to trial. Yeah, I, I thought so, too. I think I, I did have a deposition over the phone that just Jeez. asking me what, you know, what I, why did, do you think I did it for a reason? And I had to explain to him I had no thoughts in my <laughs> mind whatsoever. <laughs> right. Wow, you know, people cover my songs, so if they want to change things, that's not my onus. Yeah, yeah. So the lesson is sometimes uh, your songs can come back and provide a very pleasant surprise, and sometimes they come back and <laughs> provide a very bizarre episode. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, that second Spooky Tooth album, Spooky Two, is regarded as some of the band's finest work, and you wrote seven of the eight songs, including That Was Only Yesterday, which was a hit in Europe, and Feeling Bad, which received strong airplay in the U.S., and that's another song of yours that was covered by another artist. The R&B duo Mel and Tim released it as a single in 1970. Thought of as a pop and rock guy, but I'd like to know a little bit about how R and B kind of worked into your the creation of your artistic sensibilities. Well, I was a huge fan of uh, Ray Charles and James Brown back in, like in the late sixties. I used to go to the Apollo Theater in New York and mm. watch James Brown. Nice, you know, and it was he was just tremendous. Huh. So I was into all those the early doo-wop bands like the Coasters and the Heartbeats and. And I used to, when, while I was in Fanny, actually, that's when the seed was planted because mm. in my dressing room I had this little radio and uh, I would turn on Alan Freed and listen to, you know, his radio programs almost every night. And so that was the thing that, you know, I had these yeah. seeds of R&B in my brain and then Bobby Blue Bland and all those kind of things and all those kind of artists that were like that. And I wasn't even aware of that. What was it? It was feeling bad that was covered by uh, uh, by Mel and Tim. Never heard of it. Wow. It, uh, it went to like uh, it was on the bubbling under charts. It okay. went to like 106, 107, something like that on the Billboard pop chart. Wow. Everybody <laughs> learns something on Songcraft. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. If we can get the guests to learn something about their own catalog, yeah. we're even more excited. That's a big win. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, by 1970, you'd left Spooky Tooth and recorded your first solo album, yes. uh, Extraction featuring the single Get On The Right Road.
How did you approach the writing process differently, knowing that you were making a statement as a solo artist rather than writing for a band? Well, I think I was always frustrated that I couldn't um, be in, in my a, a solo artist, that I was always working in the context of right. a band, and that's like being married to five people at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so... I got, you know, I, I wanted to do something that I would be, you know, actually doing what I, what I, my vision of the music. Yeah. So I put together a, a band. Uh, I didn't put, actually, I didn't put together a band. I called certain friends and asked them if they wanted to play on the album. And that included Alan White, you know, who was, that was before he was in Yes. Yeah. He was in the Plastic Ono band, actually, with John Lennon. Oh. Hmm. And uh, Klaus Vorman was playing bass. And uh, another Beatle connection. Yeah. Mm hmm. And Mick Abraham's uh, guitar, and I think that was it. I can't remember if there was anybody else, but oh, Hugh McCracken. I mean, he mm. was huge, great, great, fantastic guitar player. Yeah. And then he went on to play with Steely Dan, you know. I think you know, and I think his his genius came out a little bit, you know, more with yeah. uh, you know the success that they had. Yeah. 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 Well, one of the cuts from that Extraction album was Sing a Song, which David Clayton Thomas of Blood, Sweat, and Tears fame released as a single in 1972. And even though you had not had that big artist kind of hit yet, we're starting to see people pick up on your songs, that other people are hearing your songs and, and recording them. And um, you spoke about this in your book, and I had to bring it up because... My colleague here is an Elton John fanatic, but you oh. talked about Lionel Conway uh, being your publisher, and he was also Elton's publisher, and you guys would sometimes be at Lionel's house and kind of be playing new songs. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that experience, and also just in a broader sense, as a songwriter, um, kind of the benefits of bouncing your new material mm -hmm. off of other songwriters and how that kind of shapes you. I, we used to, Sunday afternoon was dedicated to going over Lionel's house in northern London, and uh, we'd, we'd play him things. I'd play him things that I'd been working on. Elton would, would do the same. And uh, at the time, Elton was j he was a, a staff writer, I believe, over at uh, Dick James Music. Mm -hmm. And um, he, was, he came in one day to, uh, I think it was, uh, he stopped over at my house, and he played me uh, Son of Your Father, mm -hmm. which oh. he thought would be a really good song for Spooky Tooth to, to record. And we listened to it, and we said, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. And we actually put it on. At, we released it as a single, I believe. Hmm. Or it was the B-side of something. Yeah. But um, I think it was valuable, too, when you're around other people that you respect and you play them something. or you ha Sometimes you get really frustrated. You write a song, and you say, the chorus just doesn't do it for me. You know, there's just something that's not right. And somebody will come, come up, up to me, you know, or, or when I'm in the process of playing it, like, before Elton yeah. and Lionel, uh, and say, well, why don't you try instead of this flipping, you know, flipping, flipping the chord changes around and make this one start here? And mm. wow, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So that does happen, and I think it's I think it's healthy. Yeah. yeah. Sure. A lot of people say, oh, don't touch my song. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But no, I think it's healthy. Yeah. I mean, George used to do the same thing with me. He would, he would, uh, you know, play me a song. He said, I need a bridge, and I fooled around on the piano, and I, I said, well, that m might work. You know, he yeah. liked it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I know you and George Harrison were close friends and um, collaborators. How how did you first connect with one another? It was through Klaus Vorman. Uh, I was in the studio producing an artist that for Jimmy Miller's production company. Uh, this was before Extraction. And uh, 
I got a phone call from Klaus saying I'm in the studio with George Harrison. He's doing his next Beatles solo. He's doing his next solo album, mm. yeah. and it's being produced by Phil Spector. Mm. Would you want to come down because they think they need another piano player? Because <laughs> Phil was in the wall, the <laughs> right. wall of sound. You know, <laughs> right, right. Three piano players and two bass players. And there's really only one answer to that question: Do you want to come down? <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah. Oh, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. yeah. When I got into the studio, I walk in and there's Ringo and George and and uh, Billy Preston and Jeez. I think Leon Russell and all these incredible. Well, I felt those so... are the other two piano players. <laughs> yeah, Billy Preston and Leon Russell. Yeah, no Mine. pressure. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, throughout the throughout the recording of the album, they all at one point or another played. Yeah. I I actually played on all the tracks, but you know some some tracks Leon would come in sometimes. Uh, Bobby Whitlock from yeah. Eric Clapton's band. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes Carl Radel would come in from he's from Eric's band the ba the bass player. Yeah. But mainly the, the the core of the rhythm section then morphed into just myself, Eric, uh, Carl Radel or Klaus Vorman, George, and or Ringo, and Jim Gordon on drums. Yeah, mm. yeah. But that was fa fantastic because wow. here I was, you know, in the midst of all these giants. Yeah. Right, know? right. But it pushed me. It pushed me into coming up with parts that I probably would have never come up before. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, the, so that was actually the first time... You met him, was that the first session that you went to? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And then he asked me to come back the next day, and then the next day, and I went. Wow. That's very cool. The whole thing. Yeah. And then George was involved in your second solo album, Footprint. Um, yes. He produced Stand For Our Rights, uh, played slide guitar on Two-Faced Man. I understand that you and your band Wonder Wheel made a pretty memorable TV appearance with that song. Um, talk On the about Dick that. Cavett show. Yeah. Yeah. George asked me, he said, look, because he was, he was always trying to help me out in my career, and he was really kind, and he said, um, I'm doing the Dick Cavett show, and do you want to come on and do a song? I said, hey, sure, <laughs> I'd love to. So, uh, you know, he was, he was uh, in the back, you know, when the band was up front, at the Wonder Wheel was Mick Jones, uh, Tom Duffy, uh, Bryson Graham and myself and so George played but he had his head down so you couldn't see his face as he had his long hair <laughs> right. covering and then when Dick Cavett did the announcing he said Gary Wright plus friend uh -huh. and then George you know lifted his head and people went crazy that's, awesome. <laughs> right. that's so cool <laughs> and I broke a string actually right in the middle of the performance. Oh, perfect! Oh, well. <laughs> but I just kept playing. Then the thing, you know, the guitar was all out of tune. Right. Oh. <laughs> right. Show it's must go amazing. on. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the Broadway training. The show yeah. must go on. Right. Don't freak really. out. Um, well, as I mentioned in the intro to the show, you played on all of George's solo albums in the 1970s, and even some of his stuff after that point as well. Um, you played on a lot of the records that that George produced, including Ringo Starr's It Don't Come Easy. Um, great song, huge hit. Um, and George recorded some of the songs that you guys wrote together, including If You Believe from his 1979 self-titled album, and uh, That's What It Takes, which was a song on the Cloud Nine album that uh, the two of you wrote with Jeff Lynne, who, of course, produced that record, which is a killer record. If that's what it takes, then I That open door, but 
just in terms of of working with George and and being around George, having a, a personal friendship with him, um, kind of sharing the same spiritual interests and and working together. How did that relationship influence your sensibilities as a songwriter or in, in terms of how you would approach the creative process? It was, uh, it was really a, a very eye-opening kind of experience because he was so amazing as a musician because he came up with chord changes and patterns that I would have never dreamed of coming up with, yeah. but that were really beautiful because he had a great sense of putting things together and singing these amazing melodies. Yeah. Um, I mean, something, and and here comes the song. They're like two of the best songs the Beatles ever put right, out. Right. And he was just a genius. And and I I've always listened to you know how he did this and how he did that, and and I was always totally totally turned on and and surprised and just thinking, wow, what what a what an incredible gift I've been given to be mm. able to witness. Yeah. The writing of these incredible pieces of work. Yeah. I mean, it's like yeah. sitting next to Mozart or Beethoven, you know. Yeah. George, it seemed like he always had the ability to put in kind of an unconventional chord change without making you feel like it was yes. unconventional. Like uh, the song Beware of Darkness yeah. is one of my favorites. And I always feel too. like the way that song moves, I'm like, oh, I didn't see that coming, but it feels right. Yeah. You know, it never feels like he's messing with me. Yeah. That's, that was one of my favorite tracks. Love that one. Yeah. We kind of came of age in the got my mind set on you era, that cloud nine era, you know? And, uh, but I remember like really resonating with that, Hmm. even though at that time I was a a kid, you know, and here's this guy who's already been making these records for years and years and years. And there's still something about it that's timeless. that resonates with, with different generations. Yeah. George asked me, he said, you know, he said, I want to, I want to do like a cover of like an old R and B song. You have any ideas? And out of nowhere, just, popped into my mind this song set on you i got my mind set on you and i I think it was like the b-side of uh little willie john record or something Hmm. uh but it was definitely an r&b song during that era and he said how did you know about that song i said oh i was a big fan of that kind of music right really so we just put it aside and uh, a couple of weeks later we're in the studio and jim kelton is playing on tapping his drum machine and coming up with like a rhythm pattern yeah and I was just got this strong urge to start playing and to do that set on you yeah. chorus. And I was playing keyboard bass with my left hand and some synth part in my right hand and started playing and singing, I got my mind set on you. Right. And uh, Jeff picked up a bass, I believe, and and George got, it, got on his guitar and Jim started uh, keeping time on the drum machine. Yeah. And it came together within like about... I don't know, half an hour, forty-five oh. minutes. <laughs> oh, wow. The whole thing. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, number one, number one hit. Yeah, off the cuff. Um, you were playing on everyone's sessions in the early nineteen seventies in London. Uh, you played on the the BB King in London album with Ringo and Steve Winwood and Doctor John. Um, you even contributed the original instrumental uh, "Wet Hay Shark" to the proceedings of that album. Um, you were on Harry Nilsson's classic recording of "Without You." You worked with Eric Clapton and Ringo Starr on Jerry Lee Lewis's London sessions, and the list goes on and on and on. And you were very much in the inner circle of the musical elite in London in that era, but your solo artist career wasn't really taking flight yet. So 
You returned to Spooky Tooth for the critically acclaimed album You Broke My Heart So I Busted Your Jaw in 1973, which opened with your song Cotton Growing Man. And though the album was well-reviewed, it wasn't a smash hit, and the follow-up Witness didn't perform any better. And by the next album, The Mirror, Spooky Tooth, had, had broken up once again. So by this point in your career, you had recorded six albums with Spooky Tooth. You had recorded uh, three albums on your own as a solo artist, one of which was not released until very recently, which we're going to talk about in a bit. Um and you would move back to the U.S. around this time, and, and though all these musical dreams you'd been pursuing up to this point had been moderately successful, and, and you were obviously making your way and making a living in music, you just yet hadn't had that big breakthrough that every artist looks for. And I'm wondering if in those pre-Dreamweaver days, after you had traveled this road, if there was a part of you that just kind of thought, maybe I should have chosen another field or maybe I should take another path? I and mean, was there, was there self-doubt or was there just that singular, no, at some point this thing is going to click and I know it? Well, I'm a pretty tenacious person by <laughs> nature. And I don't think I ever really seriously considered not doing music. Hmm. Um, I think what happened when, when um, after the mirror kind of failed... And there was like, you know, Spooky Tooth split up, and Mick was actually kind of upset because he wanted to carry on with the band. And I said, I can't do it anymore. You know, hmm. it's just too much. Yeah. And so D. Anthony, who was my manager at the time, was very powerful. Mm -hmm. And he was in he was in kind of a, a partnership with Frank Barcelona, who was like the biggest agent, you know, for rock bands at the time. And so I said, D, I want to get us another solo deal happening and he he said okay I'll call Warner Brothers hmm. I know Joe Smith over there pretty well and so he did that and he came back said hey, yeah they want to do it yeah so um that gave me a whole new lift on my career you yeah. Know? yeah and I started writing and I had all my keyboards with me that I had from the last days of Spooky Tooth including a Mini Moog a Hammond organ a Fender Rhodes uh, a Univox Rhythm hmm. Ace and I set them up in this little basement of this house I was renting in New Jersey and just started writing. Mm. Uh, no guitars, because I wasn't a guitar player. Right. And uh, I put some things down. They were definitely R&B kind of uh, rooted, I think. Yeah. And um, somebody came out from Warner Brothers to check up on me to see what I was doing. <laughs> and a guy named Michael Oliveri and... Uh, he listened. He was smiling, and the more I played, he was smiling. I said, "He said, yeah, that's gone really good." I said, "Do you think it needs guitars?" He went, "No, it doesn't sound like it needs any guitars." So I went, "Great, <laughs> I can have an album that I'm not being drowned out by guitar players." <laughs> right. No offense to Mick because he was—he's <laughs> right. a great guitar player, but right. just the idea of you know having 
to work along with the guitar player was kind of, yeah. you know, I'd done that so much yeah. with yeah. Spooky Tooth. And he went on to Foreigner, so he was oh, fine. Oh, yeah. yeah. He <laughs> released It Feels Like the First Time came out around the same time as Dreamweaver. Wow. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Well, and Dreamweaver was a life and career changer. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I often say, too, that, you know, although I had the benefit of having George Harrison, you know, help me on my career, and he was always, you know, doing things, playing on my records and stuff like that, I never, I, I never actually hit, you know, the, the career didn't really hit until later on. I think... I think God was trying to show me that you really have to work hard for it if you want it. Mm. Mm. And I did, and it came to me. Yeah. I mean, the success I had was phenomenal. I couldn't believe in my wildest dreams that I would have you know, such huge success both recording and, and in live my live performances. Yeah. You know, having worked with Yes and Peter Frampton at like JFK and RFK stadiums. Yeah, right. 125,000 people in the audience. Amazing. So, I, <laughs> I mean, mean, I really got it like amazing payback yeah well yeah i mean that song off the album the Dreamweaver in 1975 and by the first week of 76 it was on the charts climbed to number two by march and then all the way to the number one spot in cashbox and record world which were serious competitors with billboard in those days What is the story behind that song? Well, I wrote it at, while I was visiting a friend of mine in the English countryside. George had given me a book of um, poetry by, written by Paramahansa Yogananda. And uh, I read it. Uh, I re was reading through the book one night because we were going to go to India. He invited me to go to India with him in 74. And so I came across this poem called God, God, God. And one of the lines in the poem were, when at night my mind weaves dreams with threads of sacred memories on that magic cloth do I imbibe the words God, God, God. Mm. Or that's, that's a rough translation of what it was. And I looked at the, that paragraph and I looked at again and again and then I, I saw when at night my mind weaves dreams and mm -hmm. I said, well, maybe I'm going to write that down in my titles as a prospective title for a song, Dreamweaver. And that when I was out in the English countryside with my acoustic guitar, uh, I pulled it out one afternoon and and uh, started to look at my song title book. What you know, what were some good song titles that I could use? And I saw Dreamweaver, and I said, "I'll write this song." And I, you know, I just made it real simple. It was kind of like inspired by the band because I was really into them mm. at the time. Mm. Yeah, and it didn't even have the same feel as it wound up later on when we recorded it. So um, I wrote it and I put it away. And when I was recording the album, uh, one of the sessions that we did, it was the very last session. Uh, David Foster was playing keyboards and Jim Keltner was on drums and mm -hmm. I played the keyboard, bass, and string parts. And there was one so song left to record and it was between Dreamweaver and this other song called Empty Inside and I played it for Jim and... David and I said, "What do you think? Which which song should we do?" And they both said, "Dreamweaver." <laughs> and 
actually David said it emphatically because he he changed the feel to which was the original feel to boom right yeah and I thought oh that's kind of cool like I could play keyboard bass on that too right which was which was a big part of the success I think of that album sonically because nobody really had ever gotten into keyboard bass to that degree yeah yeah so it could have sounded like Cripple Creek or the Weight yep. That's yeah. right. Wow. Interesting. Would have been a different story, probably. It would have been a different story. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and Hot on the Heels of Dreamweaver, you had another single that hit number two on the Billboard charts with Love is Alive. My heart is on fire. My soul's like a wheel that's turning. My love is alive. My love is alive. That's a song that sort of embodies what you're talking about, how the technology um, really influenced the sound of the songs. You didn't have guitars. You know, now you had it been several years prior, you wouldn't have had the technology to create that album. I mean, it was it was all kind of a very new and and pioneering sort of thing to have such a, a synthesizer heavy album. And in terms of the creative process, when you were making these songs, when you were writing the album, did you sort of have a, a vision for, I want to intentionally use this new technology to make uh, this album sound a certain way? Or did it just kind of organically unfold in terms of these are the tools I happen to be using and and this is what came out? I think it's a combination of both things. The latter one, I think, even more so because that that was what I was had to work with. And I would have two hands to play the keyboard parts with, so I have my clavinet on top here and the mini Moog down here with that I played bass. Mm-hmm. But I was limited to what I could play, so I had this echo delay device called a, uh, a uh, echoplex. Mm-hmm. And I ran the clavinet through the echoplex, and when I was writing Love is Alive, for example, I just I had this little machine going, playing a, a groove, and then I just started playing this the line on the bass, ba 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 da and then I put the clavinet through an echoplex, so we go bop bop. Right. And I thought that's I thought that sounded really good, and I came up with this kind of rock vocal. Yeah. With it, and I even grabbed the chorus from an old song I had written on a guitar that I never had done anything with. It was part of a song. Yeah. Which I I did you know that quite a lot actually. Take one bit from one song and mix it with another. Right. Right. That's that's kind of fascinating to me that. A big chunk of that song came from a song you'd written on guitar, a Dreamweaver you'd written on guitar, yet they appear on this album that is very scant in the guitar department. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the I think the, the the reason is, I mean, with a guitar, I, I had to be real simple in my writing. Yeah. And the less complicated you are sometimes, the better, you know? Mm. That's why I love a lot of Bob Dylan songs, because he's just yeah. into like, you know, one, four, five, or whatever mm. the key key changes are. Right, right. And uh, that's, how I, that's how I approached it. Yeah. That bass line on Love is Alive is, so is the coolest. Yeah, that's so the musicians, the one, all the musicians like that <laughs> right. one. Oh, that's so, so good, good man. <laughs> um, well, the follow-up to the Dreamweaver album was 1977's The Light of Smiles, featuring the single uh, Phantom Rider, which fell just shy of the top 40. <laughs>
been writing and recording for years, but this was the first time that you had to follow up an album that had been a giant commercial yeah. hit. In what ways did that pressure kind of uh, feed into the process? It was a, an enormous pressure because it was like, wow, I've got to compete with that. Right. I was on the road constantly, you know, doing concerts. So I had like my keyboards brought up to my room and, you know, I would, I would be playing. But I was, it was, it wasn't like this relaxed kind of environment like right. I had when I did Dreamweaver. It was like push, push, push. You got to beat this, yeah. or beat, do as good as Dreamweaver. And I, I made some mistakes, I think, uh, in choosing the single, the first single. Mm. The, the one that I wanted to release was the track called Water Sign. Mm. And, um, Somebody from the promotion department at Warner Brothers called me and said, "Oh, you, you, you we can't release that. It's like four minutes and twenty seconds." Hmm. And I said, "Well, we'll just, you know, I I tried some edits and they didn't work." And I said, "Well, you know, Dreamweaver is long. Let's just go for it." He said, "No, we can't." And hmm. so I said, "Oh, well, then just put out um, Phantom Rider, which was a big mistake because wow. that wasn't a single." Yeah, there were other there were other tracks on that album like Light of Smiles itself. You know, that could have been hmm. or Water Sign. That could have been uh, the singles, and once you lose the momentum, right? That's you know, then it's history. Yeah, yeah. So that's what happened, and yeah. then I went on the next album was uh, Touch and Gone. I didn't have any really successful singles on that album either. Well, and then you followed that one up with Heading Home in 1979, which um, was well received critically and was kind of a return to. Um, bringing guitars back into the mix and and sort of marrying the guitars um, and the acoustic piano and some of the more kind of organic quote unquote instrumentation with synthesized sounds and and synth bass. Um, I think about songs like uh, "Keep Loving Your Soul," where you kind of hear what you had been doing and then bringing back in those guitars. Um, and I know that by that point you had had stopped touring and. Mm even though the material was really good, you weren't able to kind of recapture that Dreamweaver moment. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what role that decision to, to not play live or, or to not tour, how do you think that kind of factored into the success of, of those albums in the post-Dreamweaver era? Uh, well, I think the decision not to go out on the road was, was one was part, was a familiar was a family kind of decision mm -hmm. because I wanted to be around to raise my my two boys. Yeah. yeah, and you know, going on the road is grueling, and you know, you're away for weeks at a time, and they they really needed me to be there. So that that played a big factor in it. Sure. Um, I think it could. I think it could have hurt it a bit. It's how how I could quantify that. I don't know. Yeah. But I think I was more concentrated then on. Um, Doing uh, things like film scores, I started mm. to, to you know score some stuff. I did some stuff with S Sylvester Stallone and John Travolta on *Staying Alive*, and mm. yeah. this German uh, film director Willy Bogner. I w did some. I did the music too about three of his movies. So I wanted to branch out a little bit. Yeah. And uh, but I was still releasing. I mean, uh, the album *The Right Place* had that single. Went to number 16, Really Want to Know You, that yeah. I wrote with Dean Parks. I wanted to ask you about that song. Because it was kind of a return to chart success, 
how did that feel to kind of get a little breath of relief maybe like okay there's that audience affirmation again yeah you know it's great it was it was really good i was really happy but there warner brothers really dropped the ball on that one because the that record was really doing well it was soaring up the charts it was like top 10 i think in canada and the week it was going to go from the, the top 20 into the top 10 they fired the head of radio promotion oh jeez <laughs> so all the that that meant that you know all the stuff that we had built 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 all of a yeah. sudden just all evaporated just disappears yeah yeah, yeah. Man, so yeah. now I was going through the years of, of, of you know, trying to rediscover myself. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you know, after that, uh, the Right Place album, you kind of took a break from releasing records for a while, and then reemerged with the Who I Am record in in 1988, which was much more a turn toward uh, world music influences, and right. we see that develop further on 1995's First Signs of Life album with songs like Don't Try to Own Me and. This is the era where um, people like you and Peter Gabriel were introducing the pop world to some of these um, influences from around the globe. Um, and so we we see this move away from kind of the straight rock and, and, and pop material um, that you had been known for. And in light of those new influences, world music influences or, or new age influences, just different sonic palettes what would you say was the difference between Gary Wright, the songwriter, in, say, 2005 versus Gary Wright, the songwriter, in 1975? Uh, I think the difference is that I was, into, I was allowing the world music side of me uh, express itself because I really, I really loved you know, the, the new thing. I think, I think a lot of it had to do, too, with just being bored doing the same old thing. It would be like if you were a chef in the kitchen and you had to eat potatoes every night <laughs> uh i considered like doing the world music stuff uh a challenge and i had but it was a good challenge and yeah. i i got i was fortunate enough uh part of it came from george's input of meeting some great indian musicians and i went to south america and and found some great brazilian percussionists and recorded there yeah so it it gave me a, a broader scope of my music, it allowed me to experience, you know, different things that I probably would have never done before. Yeah, yeah. And and it wasn't like, you know, I was saying, oh, I've got to go back and have a pop hit again. Uh, I didn't care about that at the time. I was more co concerned about just expressing something in a different way. Right, right. Which has to be kind of liberating, I would. Oh imagine. yeah, 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 very much so. Yeah. Well, in 2004, you reunited with Spooky Tooth, and four years later, you joined Ringo Starr and his all-star band. It took you around the world uh, playing Love is Alive and Dreamweaver for live audiences once again, and it kind of brought you back to that synth-heavy, pop-rock sensibility of your mid-'70s work, which resulted in the 2010 album Connected, which features the song Satisfied, written with one of our previous Songcraft guests, Bobby Hart.
And at this point, you've made more than 20 albums, both solo and with Spooky Tooth. You've covered a lot of musical ground. So I want to ask you this question. Taking the Dreamweaver LP out of the equation, what album would you point to to show this is who Gary Wright is as a songwriter? Oh, wow. <laughs> I think Who I Am had some really cool things mm. on it. Mm. Um, a lot of that had to do with, you know, with the, who was playing on it. Terry Bozio, this incredible mm, yeah. rock drummer, and... and uh, Steve Lukather, there was Steve on that. Uh, Michael Thompson, great guitar player. Yeah. Jimmy Haslip on bass. Uh, that, that was great. As far as the actual songs themselves, there were some good songs. But I would have to say, you know, I, I think the Connected album had some mm -hmm. great songs. I think it's hard for me to say that this particular album was the best one. I, there are certain songs I like from different albums, yeah. Yeah. you know, that I think uh, I, I enjoy listening to. And still up to this date, you know, if I hear something like from Extraction, like Get on mm -hmm. the Right Road or Stand for Our Rights, mm -hmm. you know, they're those kind of things. That's a that's a tough question to ask any any writer. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's what's your it's like what's one of word? your favorite of your children? Yeah, kind exactly. Of thing. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is because I mean I have many favorites and uh, and I think it's uh, it's all part of bundled together with m my career. You know, speaking of of looking back, um, your latest release was actually recorded about four and a half decades ago. And I'm talking, of course, about your third solo album, uh, Ring of Changes, credited to Gary Wright and Wonder Wheel. Um, and that, of course, was your, your band at that time, which we've talked about. But what would have been your, your third solo album was shelved by the label back in 1972, I guess it was. Right. And here we are in, in 2016, and Universal has gone into the vaults. The record is available. We can actually hear it now after all these years. Um, I'm curious, why did it take so long? Why now? How did this opportunity come about for this record to finally see the light of day after all this time? Well, I think it's everything has a time and purpose, and I think that really at the time wasn't, wasn't ready to be released. I think um, it was like we did this album... We, at, at like more like a band, we went down to the countryside and rented a house, mm -hmm. and uh, we wrote, came up with a lot of the songs. I, I co-wrote some of them with Mick Jones. Right. I I thought the album was really good, and and yeah. when they rejected it, I couldn't believe it. You know, that was like, you know, why did they do that? That doesn't make any sense. So, but you know, the chemistry wasn't right for Gary Wright to be on A and M at the time. I'm hmm. sure. Yeah. And I had to wait to go. You know, years later. To go back to Universal, which you know A and M is was a par is a part of now. Yeah. So, um, but the way it all happened was that Michelle Anthony was D. Anthony's daughter, who was a very close friend, and I t I explained to Michelle. I said, you know, I've tried to get this album released, and it's it's a great album, and nobody's interested in it, you know, and so. She said, well, let me let me do some checking around here and I'll see what I come up with. And she called me back and said, okay, called Bruce Resnikoff and he's wants to put the album out. And I spoke to him and I went, wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah, very so, cool. So he's the, that's how the, the legally the whole thing got spearheaded yeah. to, to be released. Yeah. Had you, um, I mean, how long had it been since you had had heard it had you kind of listened to it through the years or was it like you know a time i capsule? don't even i didn't even have the only thing i had was a uh, 15 ips 
uh, tape, safety copy of the album. Yeah. Mm. But I never even had it on cassette or anything. Right. You know, I had like somebody sent it to me once, but it was like all one track. So if you <laughs> right. played it, you had to play it like <laughs> right. 40 minutes. <laughs> right. You had to commit. <laughs> <laughs> so, but when I heard it then, I went, wow, this is, there's some really good stuff on this. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I went in and remastered it. And it turned out even better. So I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. I'm happy yeah. with how it turned out. Yeah, I was listening to it this morning. And uh, it's cool because it's 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 eclectic and it reflects the time well. I mean, it's a yeah. very cool, like, early 70s record. And uh, particularly Set On You is the song that just really grabbed me. I just It just had such a cool kind of that kind of funky, rootsy, country-ish, you know. Yeah. It had that vibe. And I don't need baby. was kind of like discovering a, a time capsule or something yeah. like a very cool moment in history so i'm glad that uh that we actually get to hear it and enjoy yeah. it now and uh, i'm very thankful that you got to spend some time with us today and and it's just an honor for us to to speak with you because we are fans and oh, uh and appreciate your your writing and your musicianship and so thank you very much for for doing you're welcome this. you're welcome and i enjoyed the interview it was very good Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.